Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Things are starting to pick up at the court as we get nearer to the end of the term, but we still haven't gotten any of the blockbuster cases yet. We did get some really disturbing news this week, however. As you probably know, the conservative justices have been beset by protesters coming to their homes since the Dobbs leak. On Wednesday at about 2 a.m., the marshals protecting Justice Kavanaugh and his family arrested a man who showed up at his home with a gun, a knife, and burglary tools. He told police that he had come there to kill Kavanaugh because of the Dobbs case. This is beyond the pale. The president, the attorney general, even Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who will soon be a Supreme Court justice herself, have refused to condemn protests at the justices' homes. Given liberals' superheated rhetoric about the Supreme Court, you probably remember uh, Senator Chuck Schumer's threats back in 2020, it's really not surprising that some deranged lunatic tried to get violent, but this needs to stop before one of them gets further than the justices' front yard. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this was disturbing news, and I hope everyone on a bipartisan basis will condemn uh, this type of action. On to slightly better news, uh, we do have one new grant since our last episode. It's in the case of Wilkins v. United States, and the question there is whether the Quiet Title Act statute of limitations is a jurisdictional requirement or a claim processing rule. It's being brought by our friends over at the Pacific Legal Foundation. What are the implications, Zach, of it being one or the other? That's a great question, GC. If it's jurisdictional, the statute of limitations cannot be waived, and a federal court would not have the power to hear the case. If it's a claim processing rule, it's just a procedural rule that can be waived without divesting a federal court of the authority to hear the case. Well, turning to opinions this week, we had four, three of them written by Justice Thomas. Zach, would you start us off? Sure thing. The first one is Siegel v. Fitzgerald. This is a bankruptcy-related case, and it was a unanimous decision by Justice Sotomayor, which held unconstitutional a bankruptcy law that exempted debtors in Alabama and North Carolina from having to pay increased fees that debtors in every other state had to pay. The case hinged on the Constitution's bankruptcy clause, which gives Congress the power to establish, quote, uniform bankruptcy laws throughout the country. The court held that the uniformity requirement does not permit arbitrary, geographically disparate treatment of debtors. Next up was Gallardo versus Marstiller. This was a 7-2 decision by Justice Thomas in which the court held that the Medicaid Act allows a state to seek reimbursement from settlement payments allocated for future medical care. So Ms. Gallardo's state, Florida, is currently paying medical expenses for an injury that she sustained years ago when she was struck by a truck. Naturally, Ms. Gallardo sued several parties after that incident and received a settlement. Pursuant to a provision of the Medicaid Act, Florida claimed a percentage of that settlement money to offset the costs that it has and will spend on her care. Ms. Gallardo objected and tried to read the act as severely limiting what Florida could recover. The Supreme Court, however, said that the plain language of the act includes no such limitations. It clearly allows the state to recover a percentage of any settlement to cover medical expenses. 
Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justice Breyer, dissented, arguing that the larger structure of the act, rather than the plain text, suggested that the state could only recover expenses that it has already paid. Next up, we have Southwest Airlines versus Saxon. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Thomas, where the court held that the word workers and the word employees are not the same thing. The plaintiff here filed a class action claim against Southwest, claiming that the company wasn't paying proper overtime to ramp supervisors. She, however, had an arbitration agreement with the company, but she claimed that it didn't apply because of an exemption from arbitration in the Federal Arbitration Act for, quote, workers engaged in interstate commerce. Essentially, the question was, how big can this class of workers be? Is it, as Saxon argued, all airline employees, or is it, as Southwest argued, only those employees actually engaged in interstate commerce? The court held that it was something in the middle. The act's reference to workers rather than employees means it focused on the performance of the work. The question is, does the worker perform work that is part of interstate commerce? The court held that any worker who participates in the loading and unloading of cargo that is moving in interstate commerce qualifies, so the class is airplane cargo loaders. And last up, we had Egbert versus Boole. This was a 6-3 to decision, also by Justice Thomas, where the court essentially held that courts can no longer create Bivens causes of action. Now, this one requires a little historical background. In a case called Bivens versus six unknown federal narcotics agents, the court created a cause of action for damages against federal law enforcement officers for violating a person's right against unreasonable searches and seizures. In two later cases, the court used Bivens to create two more claims, one for Fifth Amendment sex discrimination and another for a violation of the Eighth Amendment. But these cases all came in the old days when the court didn't much care for the separation of powers. Later, the court recognized that Congress, not the judiciary, has the power to create causes of action like that. So in 11 previous cases, the court has held that Bivens generally should not be expanded. Here, however, the Ninth Circuit expanded it to two new constitutional claims. The Supreme Court said, in effect, we're done doing that. Bivens may only be expanded if there is no reason to think that Congress might be better equipped to create a damages remedy. Of course, there almost always will be reason to think Congress is better suited. So what this means really, as Justice Gorsuch noted in his concurring opinion, is that there will be no more expansions of Bivens. Justice Gorsuch seemed to call uh, for Bivens, in fact, to be overruled. In a lovely turn of phrase, he said that the court should exercise the truer modesty of ceding an ill-gotten gain and forthrightly return the power to create new causes of action to the people's representatives in Congress. Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan, issued an angry dissent against what she called a restless and newly constituted court, suggesting that the court has violated precedent in this case. She is, however, off the mark. Bivens has, as Thomas pointed out, been restrained and limited now in a dozen cases, and it has been the target of withering scholarly criticism for decades. Uh, Frankly, this case was predictable. Next up, our interview for this week. We're pleased to be joined today by Morgan Ratner, a Supreme Court advocate who currently serves as special counsel in Sullivan and Cromwell's Supreme Court and appellate practice. Morgan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I know your guests often have life tenure, so I'm pretty honored to be here. (laughs) Well, we are very happy to have you here, uh, and we appreciate you coming on. 
Now, before we dive into your legal career, Morgan, i like to ask our guest, did you always want to be a lawyer? I didn't. You know, I, I think like a lot of people, I sort of stumbled into it during college. I had an interest in government, but uh, was drawn at some point to the legal side with the emphasis on writing and rules and consistency and those sorts of things spoke spoke to me. And I think also I was pretty good at those LSAT logic games. So <laughs> helps, why not get some use out of that? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, after your undergrad, uh, you attended Harvard Law School. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that experience and what it was like? Yeah, it, w- it was a great experience there. You know, I think both personally and, you know, professionally, I, I and in many ways, I, those two things mixed for me. I, I was on the law review and I met my husband the first day of new editor training there. Um, I, I hope you don't roll your eyes too much, but I joke that it was love at first sight check. Um, <laughs> oh, we, we need a, we need a, a symbol crash here. <laughs> um, but, but in addition to the sort of regular law school things, I, I will say a big part of my law school experience was that I had a life outside of it. You know, I I moved to Cambridge with three friends from college. One was doing medical research at Mass Gen Hospital. One was getting a master's in education at Harvard. And one was getting a master's in speech pathology at Boston University. And I, I, I really think it kept me so grounded having friends who were working hard but wanted to talk about things other than torts and contracts. Um, And so that's the sort of thing that I I still give as advice to students now, which is whether it's family or friends who aren't in law school or a hobby or something like that, your your whole law school experience, I think, can be kept a little more in perspective if you have something um, that, you know, something outside of the legal world. Sure. Well, your outside activities obviously didn't impact your uh, academics at Harvard. Uh, I saw where you graduated with the Faye Diploma. Uh, Could you tell our listeners about that and what the significance of that is? Sure. It's an award given to the person in the graduating class with the highest combined GPA. Somehow with all of these. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Somehow with all of these, you know, H's and P's and all of that, Harvard does still manage to have some sort of grades. Um, You know, look, candidly, I think grades only get you so far. But um, as someone who came from a state school for for my undergraduate degree and didn't have lawyers in the family, that sort of thing. It it was very unexpected, but um, certainly something I've felt very honored to receive. Did you have a favorite class in law school? That's a good question. You know, I think it was probably uh, what Harvard calls legislation and regulation, which is really getting into some of the early notions of statutory interpretation in particular. And, and that was taught at the time by um, John Manning, who now is is the dean, but was was not then. And I think that's a sort of class that has really developed over the last decade or so, and maybe maybe wasn't taught, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but actually is a better, more useful class for what a lot of lawyers do, or at the very least, what appellate lawyers do. Sure. Now, after you graduated from Harvard, I saw where you clerked for then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit. What was that experience like? Uh, so, 
I, I mean, so wonderful. Justice Kavanaugh is so hardworking. And I really mean that not just on his legal work, but really in his mentorship as well. He's involved in his clerks' lives. He does really everything he can to set them up for success. Um, I feel very indebted to him and, and confident that I wouldn't be where I am without his encouragement. Um, and and we obviously had this sort of normal suite of appeals and in the D.C. Circuit, they tend to to be a little bit heavy on the administrative side. Um, but I, we also had the sort of fun opportunity at the start of that clerkship. He sat on a three-judge panel that was ruling on a South Carolina voter ID law. And so we had the chance to see a, a trial sort of as part of our appellate oh, wow. clerkship experience. Um, and, that, and that was really interesting, especially because those sorts of uh, trials really are, are much more about the legislation, the fact witnesses are people like legislators talking about the legislative process, that sort of thing. So, so that was sort of a fun memory or, or a twist on the, the ordinary uh, appellate clerkship experience. Sure, absolutely. Does uh, Justice Kavanaugh maintain any special traditions uh, with his clerks? Yeah, so, well, at least as Judge Kavanaugh, uh, we had, uh, we typically had lunch together on Fridays when we were feeling classy. That was a place like Hill Country Barbecue. Um, <laughs> when, <laughs> Always when we a good were, choice. Yeah. When we were feeling, I think, a little more rushed, uh, we would go to a couple more divey places near the mm. courthouse. And those sorts of things are just wonderful opportunities <laughs> to have, you know, to make the sort of personal connections that last beyond the clerkships. He also, a, a tradition I know that he, he made maintains. Um, he participated every year in a, a race, a, a three-mile race called, I, I think, the Capital Challenge, um, and, and took this extremely seriously. He's got a, a, a nice competitive streak, I think, that was passed along uh, to his clerks. And so, so for my uh, for my term, I was in charge of the recruiting and had to take this equally seriously and was, you know, quizzing all of these clerks for, at, for other chambers, you know, what's your mile time? If you're not sure, can you go on the treadmill right now and tell me what you got? That um, is very intense. <laughs> so, so we were, we were very serious about it. We, I think we got ourselves a couple of ringers and ended up doing all right. Excellent. Excellent. Now, after you clerked for Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, you went on and you clerked for Chief Justice Roberts at the Supreme Court. Uh, can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I, it was also so special. I mean, I, I could not be more grateful for the one-two combo that I had. Um, you know, with the chief, one of the things that I really appreciated was that most days we had lunch together in his chambers, pretty much any day unless he had some sort of specific obligation or unless it was a day at which they had conference and all the justices would uh, have lunch. Obviously, we were okay being bumped for the other justices. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> But it was it was just a real treat, especially on days where there'd been argument, getting to hear his views on the advocacy. You could get glimpses of sort of why the chief in his private practice days was known to be kind of unparalleled as an advocate. Um, and it was also just a wonderful opportunity, I think, again, to get to know someone as a person. You know, for him, he has a very 
public facing side, but he's also someone who loves a good joke. And I'm not sure that, you know, that most people would appreciate that from his, his public facing persona. Hmm. Did the, does the chief justice maintain any traditions with his clerks uh, as well, other than uh, having lunch with them every day? Yeah, he does. You know, we went to uh, a, a Nationals game. We did a, a really kind of classic D.C. thing, uh, which was in, in cherry blossom season. We went to one of the neighborhoods in Maryland that is sort of famous for having a lot of those cherry blossoms and just took mm-hmm. a stroll through through the neighborhood there. Um, I will say sort of a I'm, I'm not sure this counts as as a tradition, but kind of speaking as of his joking side, I think one, one memory that really stuck with me um, and, and continues to kind of make me chuckle is that the law clerks had thought that the chief had a tradition of asking applicants to tell him a joke. And I'm not sure if that was completely apocryphal or if he had done that, you know, once 10 years before I clerked. And so everybody warned every applicant, you know, just in case. Um, but we had, at some point told him during the clerkship, you know, chief, he didn't ask any of us for our jokes. And uh, he had us, we went around the table and we each sort of told him the joke that we would have told in our interviews and then asked him to tell us whether we would have been hired or not based on, <laughs> on that. And so, you know, we had, a, I, I had a really meaty and interesting term, you know, there were, we had the recess appointments case in Old Canning, there was RIFRA issues in Hobby Lobby, cell phone searches in Riley, a lot of good meaty stuff. But I, I think those sorts of personal moments have really stuck with me. Well, I have two follow-up questions for you, Morgan. One is, what was your joke? Oh, and the no. second is, what was the chief's reaction to it? <laughs> no oh, pressure. So, so I have walked right into this. You know, let me just tell you, Zach, it is incredibly difficult to find a funny, clean, <laughs> not cheesy joke. I definitely did not manage all three, but I will I will give it to you as best as I recall, <laughs> which all was right, all right. a um a neutron and a proton walk into a bar and the neutron orders a beer. Bartender slides it his way. Neutron takes a sip. The proton orders a beer, and the bartender says, "Well, that'll be five dollars." And the proton said, "Well, he didn't have to pay." And the bartender says, "Well, no charge." But um. <laughs> so, what was the chief reaction? <laughs> you know, I, unbelievably, I can't remember. But I, I will tell you that it was not the worst. As bad as that joke is. It was not actually the worst of the jokes that were shared that day. So, uh. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it was good. It was a, a valiant effort. Valiant effort. Uh, it's and- hard. Look, it's hard. I'd, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear what you'd go with. <laughs> I, 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 listen, uh, the, the, I will uh, exercise moderator's privilege <laughs> and uh, circle back to that later. Perfect. <laughs> Now, after you clerked for the uh, Chief Justice, Morgan, I know you worked in private practice for several years before joining the Solicitor General's office in April of 2017. What made you decide to move from private practice into the SG's office? Well, you know, for many people interested in appellate work, I think the SG's office is kind of a dream job. I mean, you get to argue cases in front of the Supreme Court and you get to do it on behalf of the United States. Um, So 
I think I was like those many people and always kind of had it on my radar, at least um, since since my clerkship experiences. You know, those jobs don't always come open, but a few slots did come open after I'd been at the firm for a couple of years. And to be honest, I had sort of a real case of imposter syndrome. I, I wasn't sure whether I was good enough to apply or senior enough to apply. Um, and, and I really didn't go ahead and do it until I mentioned my anxiety to one of my co-clerks who said, oh, well, I already applied. <laughs> and I thought like, well, I guess if you're qualified and, and we clerk together, I should be qualified too. Um, and so I, I was happy for that little boost and, and was lucky enough to get the job. And, and for what it's worth, my wonderful co-clerk was also hired that year. Uh, but, Excellent. But, but I think that was a real lesson for me in, in trying to discipline yourself not to, not to hold yourself back because of self-doubt. Mm. Now, how was your experience in the SG's office different than your experience in private practice? Well, you know, there are, I, I think, many ways in which the skill set is similar, right? Right, you're still briefing. You are still doing research. You're still trying to come up with with good theories and good arguments. But in terms of the volume, there's just nothing like working in the SG's office. You know, and as an assistant, you're turning through forty or fifty briefs a year, dozens of memos, uh, other sorts of meetings and obligations. And so, I think you know, preparation for oral argument, I think, is a good. a good in indicator of the differences, right? If you're in private practice, I think everyone would say, whoa, you have a Supreme Court argument coming up. You know, we'll leave you alone for the next three weeks or something like that. And it's just <laughs> nothing like that would ever happen in the SG's office. You just, it just isn't possible in light of the workload there. Um, so I, I think the volume is a, is a big difference. And and frankly, I, I've worked with lots of talented people in and outside the SG's office, but I think the quality, uh, the consistent quality and integrity of the people there is is just unmatched. I mean, I, I'm still in awe of the fact that I got to work with career deputies like Ed Needler and Malcolm Stewart, who I think combined have spent 70 years in the SG's office wow. um, or, or something like that. Um, so, uh, so there there were some differences even if even if the skill set generally translates well from private practice. Mm. Now, I know while you were at the SG's office, you had an opportunity to argue eight cases before the Supreme Court. Do you have any special memories or any good war stories uh, from those arguments or their preparations? So, you know, I wish I could tell you stories of charming the justices with my witty jokes at argument. <laughs> um, I don't have any of those, but I, I do have sort of two that were kind of more notable to me. Okay. So one one was a, a case called Our Lady Against Morrissey Barrow. It, was a, it involved the First Amendment's ministerial exception. Um, and so in addition to being an interesting issue, uh, and one that, as as you've seen, uh, the Supreme Court continues to grapple with in, in some ways, right. um, it, it sticks out to me because that was the first sitting of uh, pandemic arguments. So it was the first sitting where mm. arguments were held over the phone. And it was just interesting because the SG's office is this sort of finely oiled machine for oral arguments, and everything's done just so. And then all of a sudden, we're 
you know, testing all sorts of speakerphones and headsets and trying to figure out what in the world people should wear to oral arguments that are conducted <laughs> by telephone. Um, the side note, the answer was apparently the traditional morning suit dress oh, wow. for, for uh, even those arguing over telephone. Although I was um, pregnant at the time and did get special dispensation that I did not have to acquire a maternity suit for yeah. a telephonic argument, but instead could wear whatever, you know, business attire I had been wearing to the office. Did you guys set up a, a war room there in the SG's office to do the arguments? Was it at your desk in your office? How, how did all of that work? Yeah, so we ended up doing it in the conference room on speakerphone. I think some of the issues were if you didn't do it that way, there was a little bit of a lag in timing. And we mm. typically like having, you know, the assistant and the deputy who's on the case uh, being there together and being able to hear the arguments and questions in real time. But, you know, there was this a whole setup. There was a blanket that was set out uh, that your papers were on top of so that they wouldn't rustle <laughs> too much. And, um, and you know, we'd placed the speaker phones in just so, and it was best yeah. if you talked in, in a particular angle. So it, it was all pretty interesting. And, and I, I do think um, in – I, look, I, I missed being in the courtroom, but sure. one of the nice aspects of it is is my kids were too young to ever see me argue in court. And I, I have this really great uh, photo of my eldest son standing in his diaper looking up at the TV in my house <laughs> where my headshot was on C-SPAN during that argument. Um, and I'll, I'll treasure oh, that fantastic. one. Um, you know, look, the other memory, this is maybe not a positive one, but a memorable one for me was from a case called Cornelia against Strom, which was about the so-called community caretaking exception under mm -hmm. the Fourth Amendment. Um, and the United States didn't defend community caretaking as such, but we did argue that a warrantless entry is permissible when reasonably necessary for human health and safety. And of course, the Chief Justice asked a question right away about saving a cat in a tree. You know, not a human, right? And our line right. was human health and safety. So I had to say no and stick to the line that we drew because, um, you know, that's the point of drawing lines. You got to <laughs> right. answer the bad hypos too. Right. And afterward, one of my friends showed me how this had been reported on Twitter, which was something like, you know, Chief Justice, colon, what about saving a cat in the tree? Attorney for the United States, colon, let it die. So um, <laughs> not the most favorable reporting, uh, but, you know, like I said, sometimes you have to <laughs> stick to a principled line. It might be tough uh, next time you go to the pet store or the animal shelter. <laughs> to, <laughs> to exactly. Adopt, but, uh, I have nothing against cats, to be clear. <laughs> all right. Even though I'm a dog person, I can, I can understand that. Now, we had your colleague, Jeff Wall, on the show earlier this year, and he mentioned an interesting experience that you had uh, that I understand is relatively rare for someone in the SG's office. Uh, he mentioned that you actually ended up having to go into the Court of Federal Claims, uh, which is a specialized federal trial court, and argue a case there. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yes. So you're right. It is rare. Um, attorneys from the SG's office don't often argue outside the Supreme Court. I don't know if the numbers, but I'd say, you know, maybe at most a case a year is is probably a, somewhere about average. You know, they may do that when there's a very important issue and it's destined for the Supreme Court and it might be operating under some sort of 
unusual timeline, or maybe it's just particularly sensitive. Sure. Um, for 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 this particular argument, there was a. a important takings issue involving PROMESA, which was, uh, which is the law governing Puerto Rico's restructuring. And there was, yes, there was a lot of money on the line, but also the issues were really intertwined with the Aurelius case that was headed to the Supreme Court in short order. And so, you know, we had this other case that was important. They were intertwined and potentially had some legal overlap. And so we took the unusual step of, of having me argue that in the court of a Court of Federal Claims. Um, it was it was an interesting experience. It was very free flowing. The judge went back and forth and back and forth. Um, I was probably on my feet for several hours. That was no small task because. I was uh, extremely pregnant at the time. Oh, this is a, a, a different pregnancy, I think. Um, but uh, <laughs> happily, I had worn flat shoes. Um, Good. And Good. <laughs> so it was just, uh, it was a little more Wild Wild West style. You didn't really know what to expect. <laughs> you could have been up there for 15 minutes or, you know, as it turned out, six hours. And, um, and there could be pauses for reading cases or looking things up or talking with the team, um, which is just completely different, obviously, from how how the sort of structured Supreme Court arguments go. I, I will say just a brief coda to the experience. I worked with wonderful and very talented lawyers in the federal programs branch on that case, mm-hmm. and they would usually handle court of federal claims litigation. And so a few days after the argument, I'm at my desk, I get an, an envelope in the internal mail system and I open it up and there's a bright blue plastic quill inside and one of the attorneys the federal programs attorneys wrote me a note that said you know I know you usually get these elegant white quills after arguing in the Supreme <laughs> Court but our court is a little more colorful so we wanted you to have this one um, and I really so. treasured that I have a I have a vase with all of my Supreme Court quills and with my my bright blue court of federal claims quill Excellent. Excellent. Now, other than receiving a quill, uh, either a white quill or a blue quill, <laughs> depending <laughs> on where you argued, are there any other traditions uh, in the SG's office that might surprise our listeners? So, Zach, let me give you one serious and one not serious. Um, Great. On, on the serious side, I, I hope that it wouldn't actually surprise listeners. But if you've never been a part of a meeting with the SG's office I think they're really remarkable. Uh, Often the United States will be deciding what position it might take as amicus in a case where the Supreme Court has granted review, or maybe there's a case where the Supreme Court has called for the views of the Solicitor General or CVSG, as your listeners may know. And and so uh, the office in those cases will invite advocates for each side to come in for separate meetings. They're held back to back. All the participants from the SG's office and whatever Department of Justice divisions or outside agencies that may have interest in the case, um, they're all seated around you know, this old school conference table. There's a giant portrait of Robert Jackson, or it might be Harlan Fiststone Fist now looking down on you. Um, and the o- OSG lawyers are grill one side, you know, kind of boot court style. Mm-hmm. And then that side leaves, they grill the other side. And then afterward, the representatives from the government sit around this conference table and really hash things out. They try to figure out what's the right answer on the merits and what's in the federal government's interest. And I think it's just a marvel of deliberative process and probably not one that 
all corners of the government experience. Um, I think if people could see that in action, it, it would give them um, significant respect for, for how the office functions. Um, and then I, on the sillier side, uh, the assistants have a lot of social traditions. Um, and one uh, is an annual bake-off. Uh, what makes the Bake Off interesting is not... I already like this tradition. Yeah, it's a good Bake Off. <laughs> it's even better now that Colleen Sinsdak is in the office because she has really improved the overall quality of, of baked goods. Um, but but what makes the Bake Off interesting is not the cupcakes or the cookies, although they are a nice bonus, um, but the fact that a bunch of smart lawyers have clearly over time pushed the boundaries of the various rules governing the Bake Off. <laughs> so you have a variety of extremely specific rules that are, are applied every year. Like there's literally a rule about what it means for something to be baked, something like it must include an application of heat, whether through the oven, microwave, blowtorch, or similar device, you know, something like that. Because you know that at some point there had been a dispute about whether someone who had, like, I don't know, microwaved chocolate chips and poured it on top of a no-bake thing had in fact baked. You know, there were also specific rules about, like, what substantial participation in the baking would, you know, what was required for that. Anyway, it, it was just, uh, it was like... If lawyers could really lawyer up a good old bake-off, uh, we really succeeded in doing that. Lawyers, they just ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, last year, you decided to move back into private practice and join Sullivan and Cromwell's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Group uh, from the SG's office. What made you decide to leave the SG's office and move back into private practice? Uh, it was a really hard decision. Um, as I as I said before, you know, to me, working in the SG's office is a, a complete dream job. Uh, but you know, I had a variety of, of family considerations, including the the two little ones I may have mentioned, and so I started thinking about how to how to make a change. Um, and then sure. this opportunity at, at Sullivan and Cromwell was just really too good to pass up. I had, I know you had Jeff on the show before I had worked with him for, for much of my time in the SG's office. And I think he's just a, such a careful writer and a fierce advocate and a, a thoughtful friend too. And, sure. and so to have the chance to work with him and to develop a sort of legal issues focused practice at a law firm that already had an amazing roster of attorneys and clients, I, I thought, you know, I may not have an opportunity need this good if I, if I wait another year or two. Um, and even though, you know, I haven't been at the firm even six months yet, I, I really am proud of, of the team we're developing and the practice we're growing. Excellent. Now, Morgan, I have a final question for you that we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101, uh, so no pressure. But if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? I'm so tempted to pick the classic choices, you know, someone like Justice Harlan or Justice Jackson. Um, but I, to be honest, right now in this moment, I think I would stay in the present and pick Justice O'Connor. Um, I was uh, I was disappointed when I uh, clerked that that term, I never really got to interact with her, even though she made a couple appearances at the court. She had historically held an exercise class for, for the women clerks. Um, and, and that year, for whatever reason, um, she 
didn't. And maybe I've never gotten over that disappointment. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, I've, I've always admired her commitment to civility and the fact that on a public stage, she's done some very public balancing of her personal and professional lives, which is a balancing act that, that I struggle with a lot. Um, and I, and so I, th I think hearing someone like her talk about that, hearing someone like her talk about uh, seeing, uh, you know, soon seeing four women on the court after having been the first woman on the court, I, I, and, you know, hearing her talk about civility in the current political discourse, I, I, I think a lot of the things that were important to her and how she sort of stood out in, in our culture to me are, are coming to head right now. And I, I, it would be, I think, just a real privilege to hear her views on those. Well, Morgan, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking time to talk with us. Uh, I hope you'll come back again in the future. Thanks, Zach, for having me. GC, with the frightening news about the person arrested outside of Justice Kavanaugh's home, it got me thinking about other attempts that have been made to harm justices or other federal judges. Now, this is somewhat uh, of a more serious trivia topic, but I think it highlights the very real dangers that many of our nation's jurists face. Interesting. I was hoping you might pick this as a trivia topic because I wondered if there have been similar attempts in the past. Well, we will find out. My first question, GC, is who is the only justice that I can find uh, to have had a credible attempt made on his life? Now, this may be a bit of a tricky question, GC, so I'll give you a hint. Okay. Uh, he was, in fact, a trivia answer a few weeks ago. And if you'll recall, he was the second longest serving justice in the court's history. Uh, and John Paul Stevens missed tying his service record by only three days. So I don't know about this, the story on his life, but I but from your hint, I know that that's uh, Justice Stephen Field. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and GC, this is one of those stories that's hard to believe because it's so outlandish. Uh, but basically, Justice Field was hearing a case in his capacity as a circuit justice, and he ruled against former California Supreme Court Chief Justice David Terry, who was representing his then-wife, Sarah Hill, in a dispute over whether she should be entitled to a former silver magnate's fortune under a will that she had conveniently found in his desk, and which conveniently gave her all of his assets. <laughs> Shocking, I know. Uh, Field ruled that the will was a forgery and that she wasn't entitled to take <laughs> anything under it because of that. Now, the rest of this story is going to take a minute, but here's where things really get wild. When Field announced his ruling that the will was a forgery, Terry's wife became upset and began screaming obscenities at Field, and she even tried to pull a revolver <laughs> in court. Wow. Terry... Uh, who was representing his then-wife, also became upset, and he actually drew a Bowie knife <laughs> in court <laughs> and began threatening Justice Field. Now, as you can imagine, the uh, deputy marshals present didn't appreciate this and actually subdued them, and Field, he didn't appreciate that either, and he actually appropriately, <laughs> I think, held them both in contempt of court. And Terry uh, was actually sentenced to six months in jail for his outburst. But... Uh, that wasn't enough for Terry or his wife, and they continued to make threats against Justice Field. In fact, they were so severe that 
uh, the Attorney General actually assigned Deputy U.S. Marshals to be Justice Fields' bodyguards. And as it turns out, (laughs) this was a good call. Because about a year later, Terry and Field were on the same train headed toward San Francisco. When Terry saw Field, he walked up to him and he slapped him. And that's when Field's bodyguard, a deputy U.S. Marshal, thought that Terry was reaching for his Bowie knife. Uh, So the deputy U.S. Marshal shot the former California Chief Justice dead. Oh my goodness. If you can't believe it, GC, uh, the story (laughs) actually doesn't end there. It gets even weirder. Uh, There was a whole round of legal wrangling after the marshal shot uh, Terry. Uh, The deputy marshal was actually arrested for murder by the local sheriff, and the U.S. Attorney General had to secure a writ of habeas corpus to get him released. And in the legal wrangling related to this and a case that actually came out of this, the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately had to decide whether the U.S. Attorney General had the authority to appoint deputy marshals as bodyguards for justices. Now, the result in this case wasn't incredibly (laughs) shocking (laughs) uh, because the justices held that the attorney general did have that authority. Now, believe it or not, there's actually one more really strange twist to this entire saga. Before being appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, Field had served on the California Supreme Court, where he had actually replaced Terry on that court. GC, do you have any idea why uh, Terry had to resign from the California Supreme Court? No, I don't, but I think uh, it's going to be a good one. Well, it certainly uh, was unexpected when I read it. Uh, Terry had to resign from the California Supreme Court because he had actually killed California's sitting U.S. senator in a duel. (laughs) Uh, This is really stranger than fiction. (laughs) I mean, listen, I think if someone needs a good plot for a soap opera... Here you go. (laughs) So uh, I do have one more uh, fun fact about Justice Field. In addition to being the second longest serving justice, do you know what other Supreme Court record he holds, GC? No, I'm not sure. Although if I was going to guess, I'd say he, what, did he write the most opinions given how long he was on the court? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, He actually authored more opinions than any other justice in the court's history, and his tally came out at 544 opinions. Wow. Good guess. Now, this next question may not be directly related to any of the justices' judicial service, uh, but several justices, unfortunately, have also had harrowing experiences. Do you remember which justice had an experience several years ago where he was actually robbed by a machete-wielding intruder while vacationing uh, in the Caribbean? Yes, this was Justice Breyer. What what a crazy story. Well, it really is. You know, the robber got away with $1,000 in cash, but fortunately no one was hurt uh, during this robbery. Now, unfortunately, uh, that wasn't the end of Justice Breyer's troubles because a few months later— His Washington, D.C. home was actually robbed as well. Oh. Uh, I know. Bad luck. Uh, But again, fortunately, no one was hurt uh, because no one was home uh, when the robbery occurred. Well, one more question related to uh, Justice's bad luck (laughs) uh, in D.C. Do you know which other recent former justices were robbed while they were out and about uh, in the Washington, D.C. area? Well, I know of one. I know that Justice Souter was once robbed while he was jogging near his home here. That's right. 
That's right. But I'm not aware of any others. Well, that was right. Justice uh, Souter has actually mugged while he's out jogging uh, one day. And then Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, unfortunately, actually had her purse snatched uh, while she was walking home to her uh, then apartment in the Watergate complex uh, from the Kennedy Center. Uh, so it can be uh, dangerous out there on the streets of D.C. <laughs> well, yeah, you don't have to tell me that. Yeah, I know. It's unfortunately gotten much worse in uh, recent years. Uh, but look, GC, you know, I think the the important point to take away from this is many of our state and federal judges face very real threats because of their service. You know, there was a story uh, just this past week about a retired Wisconsin judge who was murdered in his home because of his mm. uh, uh, service on the bench. You know, there have been federal judges who have been killed in the past because of their service. There's the recent news story about you know, family members who were killed uh, while attempts were being made on the judges' lives. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that judges and justices do face real dangers and that we should thank them for their service and fully support efforts to keep them and their families safe as they seek to impartially administer justice. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for listening today. That's all we have. Uh, please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.